Section 7 of History of the United States, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter. July 2007. History of the United States by Charles A. Beard and Mary Ritter Beard. Part 2. Section 7. The Finances of the Revolution When the Revolution opened, there were thirteen little treasuries in America, but no common treasury, and from first to last the Congress was in the position of a beggar rather than a sovereign. Having no authority to lay and collect taxes directly, and knowing the hatred of the provincials for taxation, it resorted mainly to loans and paper money to finance the war. Quote, "'Do you think,' boldly inquired one of the delegates, "'that I will consent to load my constituents with taxes "'when we can send to the printer and get a wagon-load of money, "'one choir of which will pay for the whole?' Paper Money and Loans Acting on this curious but appealing political economy, Congress issued in June 1776 two million dollars in bills of credit to be redeemed by the states on the basis of their respective populations. Other issues followed in quick succession. In all, about two hundred and forty-one million dollars of continental paper was printed, to which the several states added nearly two hundred and ten million dollars of their own notes. Then came interest-bearing bonds in ever-increasing quantities. Several millions were also borrowed from France, and small sums from Holland and Spain. In desperation a national lottery was held, producing meagre results. The property of Tories was confiscated and sold, bringing in about sixteen million dollars. Begging letters were sent to the states, asking them to raise revenues for the Continental Treasury, but the states, burdened with their own affairs, gave little heed. INFLATION AND DEPRECIATION As paper money flowed from the press, it rapidly declined in purchasing power, until in 1779 a dollar was worth only two or three cents in gold or silver. Attempts were made by Congress and the states to compel people to accept the notes at face value, but these were like attempts to make water flow uphill. Speculators collected at once to fatten on the calamities of the Republic. Fortunes were made and lost gambling on the prices of public securities, while the Patriot Army, half-clothed, was freezing at Valley Forge. Quote, speculation, peculation, engrossing, forestalling, exclaimed Washington, afford too many melancholy proofs of the decay of public virtue. Nothing, I am convinced, but the depreciation of our currency, aided by stock-jobbing and party dissensions, has fed the hopes of the enemy. Unquote. The Patriot Financiers To the efforts of Congress in financing the war were added the labors of private citizens, 
Hain Solomon, a merchant of Philadelphia, supplied members of Congress, including Madison, Jefferson, and Monroe, and army officers like Lee and Steuben, with money for their daily needs. Altogether he contributed the huge sum of half a million dollars to the American cause, and died broken in purse, if not in spirit, a British prisoner of war. Another Philadelphia merchant, Robert Morris, won for himself the name of Patriot Financier, because he labored night and day to find the money to meet the bills which poured in upon the bankrupt government. When his own funds were exhausted, he borrowed from his friends. Experienced in the handling of merchandise, he created agencies at important points to distribute supplies to the troops, thus displaying administrative as well as financial talents. Women organized drives for money, contributed their plate and their jewels, and collected from door to door. Farmers took worthless paper in return for their produce, and soldiers saw many a payday pass without yielding them a penny. Thus by the labors and sacrifices of citizens, the issuance of paper money, lotteries, the floating of loans, borrowings in Europe, and the impressment of supplies, the Congress staggered through the Revolution like a pauper who knows not how his next meal is to be secured, but is continuously relieved at a crisis by a kindly fate. THE DIPLOMACY OF THE REVOLUTION When the full measure of honor is given to the soldiers and sailors and their commanding officers, the civilians who managed finances and supplies, the writers who sustained the American spirit, and the women who did well their part, there yet remains the duty of recognizing the achievements of diplomacy. The importance of this field of activity was keenly appreciated by the leaders in the Continental Congress. They were fairly well versed in European history. They knew of the balance of power and the sympathies, interests, and prejudices of nations and their rulers. All this information they turned to good account, in opening relations with Continental countries, and seeking money, supplies, and even military assistance. For the transaction of this delicate business, they created a secret committee on foreign correspondence as early as 1775, and prepared to send agents abroad. American Agents Sent Abroad Having heard that France was inclining a friendly ear to the American cause, the Congress, in March 1776, sent a commissioner to Paris, Silas Dean of Connecticut, often styled as the first American diplomat. Later in the year a form of treaty to be presented to foreign powers was drawn up, and Franklin, Arthur Lee, and Dean were selected as American representatives at the court of His Most Christian Majesty, the King of France. John Jay of New York was chosen minister to Spain in 1779, John Adams was sent to Holland the same year, and other agents were dispatched to Florence, Vienna, and Berlin. The representative selected for St. Petersburg spent two fruitless years there, quote, ignored by the court, living in obscurity, and experiencing nothing but humiliation and failure, unquote. Frederick the Great, King of Prussia, expressed a desire to find in America a market for Silesian linens and woolens, but, fearing England's command of the sea, he refused to give direct aid to the revolutionary cause. 
Early French Interest The great diplomatic triumph of the Revolution was won at Paris, and Benjamin Franklin was the hero of the occasion, although many circumstances prepared the way for his success. Louis the Sixteenth's foreign minister, Count de Vergennes, before the arrival of any American representative, had brought to the attention of the king the opportunity offered by the outbreak of the war between England and her colonies. He showed him how France could redress her grievances and, quote, reduce the power and greatness of England, unquote. The empire that in 1763 had forced upon her a humiliating peace, quote, at the price of our possessions, of our commerce, and our credit in the Indies, at the price of Canada, Louisiana, Isle Royale, Acadia, and Senegal, unquote. Equally successful in gaining the king's interest was a curious French adventurer, Beaumarchais, a man of wealth, a lover of music, and the author of two popular plays, Figaro and The Barber of Seville. These two men had already urged upon the king secret aid for America before Dean appeared on the scene. Shortly after his arrival, they made confidential arrangements to furnish money, clothing, powder, and other supplies to the struggling colonies, although official requests for them were officially refused by the French government. Franklin at Paris When Franklin reached Paris, he was received only in private by the king's minister, Vergennes. The French people, however, made manifest their affection for the plain Republican, in his full-dress suit of spotted Manchester velvet. He was known among men of letters as an author, a scientist, and a philosopher of extraordinary ability. His Poor Richard had thrice been translated into French, and was scattered in numerous editions throughout the kingdom. People of all ranks, ministers, ladies at court, philosophers, peasants, and stable-boys, knew of Franklin, and wished him success in his mission. The queen, Marie Antoinette, fated to lose her head in a revolution soon to follow, played with fire by encouraging our dear Republican. For the king of France, however, this was more serious business. England resented the presence of this traitor in Paris, and Louis had to be cautious about plunging into another war that might also end disastrously. Moreover, the early period of Franklin's sojourn in Paris was a dark hour for the American Revolution. Washington's brilliant exploit at Trenton on Christmas night, 1776, and the battle with Cornwallis at Princeton had been followed by the disaster at Brandywine, the loss of Philadelphia, the defeat at Germantown, and the retirement to Valley Forge for the winter of 1777 to 1778. New York City and Philadelphia, two strategic ports, were in British hands, the Hudson and Delaware rivers were blocked, and General Burgoyne, with his British troops, was on his way down through the heart of northern New York, cutting New England off from the rest of the colonies. No wonder the king was cautious. Then the unexpected happened. Burgoyne, hemmed in from all sides by the American forces, his flanks harried, his foraging parties beaten back, his supplies cut off, surrendered on October 17, 1777, to General Gates, 
who had superseded General Schuller in time to receive the honor. Treaties of Alliance and Commerce, 1778 News of this victory, placed by historians among the fifteen decisive battles of the world, reached Franklin one night, early in December, while he and some friends sat gloomily at dinner. Beaumarchais, who was with him, grasped at once the meaning of the situation, and set off to the court at Versailles, with such haste that he upset his coach and dislocated his arm. The king and his ministers were at last convinced that the hour had come to aid the revolution. Treaties of commerce and alliance were drawn up and signed in February 1778. The independence of the United States was recognized by France, and an alliance was formed to guarantee that independence. Combined military action was agreed upon, and Louis then formally declared war on England. Men who had, a few short years before, fought one another in the wilderness of Pennsylvania, or on the plains of Abraham, were now ranged side by side in a war on the empire that Pitt had erected, and that George III was pulling down. Spain and Holland Involved Within a few months, Spain, remembering the steady decline of her sea power since the days of the Armada, and hoping to drive the British out of Gibraltar, once more joined the concert of nations against England. Holland, a member of a league of armed neutrals, formed in protest against British searches on the high seas, sent her fleet to unite with the forces of Spain, France, and America to prey upon British commerce. To all this trouble for England was added the danger of a possible revolt in Ireland, where the spirit of independence was flaming up. THE BRITISH OFFER TERMS TO AMERICA Seeing the colonists about to be joined by France in a common war on the English Empire, Lord North proposed, in February 1778, a renewal of negotiations. By solemn enactment, Parliament declared its intention not to exercise the right of imposing taxes within the colonies, at the same time it authorized the opening of negotiations through commissioners to be sent to America. A truce was to be established, pardons granted, objectionable laws suspended, and the old imperial constitution, as it stood before the opening of hostilities, restored to full vigor. It was too late. Events had taken the affairs of America out of the hands of British commissioners and diplomats. EFFECTS OF FRENCH AID The French alliance brought ships of war, large sums of gold and silver, loads of supplies, and a considerable body of trained soldiers to the aid of the Americans. Timely as was this help, it meant no sudden change in the fortunes of war. The British evacuated Philadelphia in the summer following the alliance, and Washington's troops were encouraged to come out of Valley Forge. They inflicted a heavy blow on the British at Monmouth, but the treasonable conduct of General Charles Lee prevented a triumph. The recovery of Philadelphia was offset by the treason of Benedict Arnold, the loss of Savannah and Charleston, 1780, and the defeat of Gates at Camden. The full effect of the French alliance was not felt until 1781, when Cornwallis went into Virginia and settled at Yorktown. 
Accompanied by French troops, Washington swept rapidly southward and penned the British to the shore while a powerful French fleet shot off their escape by sea. It was this movement, which certainly could not have been executed without French aid, that put an end to all chance of restoring British dominion in America. It was the surrender of Cornwallis at Yorktown that caused Lord North to pace the floor and cry out, quote, It is all over, it is all over. Unquote. What might have been done without the French alliance lies hidden from mankind. What was accomplished with the help of French soldiers, sailors, officers, money, and supplies is known to all the earth. Quote, all the world agree. Exultantly wrote Franklin from Paris to General Washington, that no expedition was ever better planned or better executed. It brightens the glory that must accompany your name to the latest posterity. Unquote. Diplomacy as well as martial valor had its reward. End of section seven.